Welcome. This is the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast, episode 9. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. In the Los Angeles Times this morning, quote, I'm sure the killer is still in town, Detective Harry Fremont declared, and I'm almost certain it was he who mailed us Elizabeth Short's belongings. Fremont said that all persons listed in the Brown address book who live in Los Angeles have been contacted by police, but that no significant information was obtained from them. This tended to support the thesis that the surprise package was sent by the egotistic murderer and contained nothing that might incriminate him. End quote. What a surprisingly quick journey in just two days. The front page story goes from the police have so many leads they don't know where to begin to the police have learned little and they have no suspects. The lack of suspects means that there is less day-to-day news, and this episode will cover the next four days and will focus on five things. One, the FBI finds no match for the prints on the envelope. Two, the address leads are not clues. Three, the Black Dahlia Avenger sends a postcard stating he will surrender. Four, three people confess to the murder. And five, there are now three locations to think about. The Norton dump site, the Crenshaw Boulevard Cafe purse disposal, and a downtown post office box. The FBI reports that the prints have no matches. This exonerates felons, military personnel, and government employees, including the post office. This frustrating news arrives in concert with the discovery that the names in the address book are of little value. The investigation is at a standstill. It's of importance to note that the FBI negative fingerprint match means the same thing to us in 2020. There are no suspects. Well, this is important enough for me to say it again. There are no viable suspects in 2020. But if you look on Wikipedia, it's got a list of Black Dahlia quote suspects. And articles on the web list suspects that are taken from the 1949 grand jury testimony and the district attorney investigation. Not the LAPD files. So it's unlikely that the DA office has the same information as the LAPD because the FBI has communicated with the LAPD that Leslie Dillon's prints do not match those of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Famous unsolved murders like the Zodiac or Jack the Ripper remain very topical based on the presentation of new evidence and potentially new suspects. So it's typical for true crime commentaries to begin with the concept that here are our suspects in this unsolved murder. In the Black Dahlia case, many names in the investigation related to the grand jury are called suspects when in reality, quote, Chicago policeman, end quote, and female queer doctor, or Chuck 
last name unknown, are persons of interest who could not be reached, this type of lead is not a true suspect. The interviewed suspects are cleared based on fingerprints. Dr. Patrick O'Reilly was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. His fingerprints are on file, so the LAPD has dismissed him as a suspect. George Hodel is arrested for rape. His fingerprints are on file. He is going to be dismissed as a suspect. The Los Angeles Police Department submits Leslie Dillon's prints to the FBI, and on January 11, 1949, the response is, there is no match. He's not a valid suspect. This is why I have a podcast. Honestly, if I had a suspect to prosecute, I could write a book. Instead, what we have is proof that there are no suspects. How do I know the prints are real? Given the spin in the press that the police believe the prints are smudged or the prints are of those of postal employees. And the answer is that the police actions serve as proof. The Los Angeles Police Department sends hundreds of fingerprints to the FBI to check against the Black Dahlia file. So clearly they believe in the veracity of that match. The Los Angeles Police Department submits the prints of Leon Burris to the FBI on March 4, 1947. And on the 5th of March, the LAPD submits 257 fingerprints to the FBI. I assume this large number of prints likely comes from derivers' files of sexual deviance. And so the reporting of gasoline is simply window dressing, as we've discussed. And you know, it's funny, as I thought of last week's podcast and the statement in the newspapers that the clever killer uses gasoline to defeat the police. If you want to defeat the police, wear gloves. You don't have to put gasoline all over everything. There is a postcard that is sent to the examiner. It's received on Monday, January 27th. The handwriting on the postcard says, here it is, turning in, Wednesday, January 29th at 10 a.m. Had my fun at police, signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. That's handwritten. Then a floodgate of postcards follow, one that says, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified, end quote. This is with cut out newspaper letters and words. There's no salutation or signature. I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. Cut out newsprint letters and words. No salutation, no signature. Dahlia killer cracking wants terms. Cut out letters. No salutation, no signature. Are these real? Perhaps. There's no fingerprints on any of the postcards. And so the police dismiss them as unhelpful and indicate that these are likely hoaxes. Since they lead nowhere, the fact is the result is the same, whether they are a hoax or whether they are valid. I'm going to borrow the word volunteer to describe a person who wants to be part of a criminal event. A great example can be found in the investigation of Georgette Bauerdorf's murder. Amateur detective James Lynch, a plumber, was questioned by authorities after he was found in the basement 
of El Paseo Apartments on September 23, 1945. He explained that he could do a better job than the police in investigating the killing. So Lynch is a, quote, volunteer in the Georgette Bauerdorf murder. The Black Dahlia headlines have stirred people's imagination for 10 days. Now the mystery begins to stir volunteers to act. Daniel Vorheen, a 33-year-old restaurant porter, telephoned police to pick him up at a downtown street corner. He volunteers a confession, then is handed over to Deriver to interview, and he is released. He has a history of sex crimes. Miss Minnie Sepulveda, 37, volunteers she's responsible for the murder in a phone call from a South Vermont beer hall. Sepulveda denies confessing on the phone when police arrive. She's arrested, then released. Emily Williams, 24, waitress, telephoned her confession from a San Diego bar. Williams, when confronted with her many wrong facts, denied ever making the call and is released by the San Diego police. 35-year-old waitress Thelma Thompson told police she battled with a man who called himself the Black Dahlia Killer. The waitress said she met the man in a bar last night. He agreed to take her home. When he parks the car, he volunteered, I'm going to kill you like I did the Black Dahlia. Miss Thompson said she screamed and fought him off. A cab driver heard the screams and ran to the car. Miss Thompson was then shoved out into the street and the man fled into the night. Taken into custody later, Donald Pomeroy, 20, told deputies he'd been drinking in a cafe with Miss Thompson and that she had asked him to drive her home. He denied he had molested her. Police released Pomeroy without booking him. A few days later, Isabel Foster of Culver City reported that a man in a 1940 sedan drove up to her at the curb as she waits at a bus stop. After asking if she would like a ride, the man showed her a knife and forced her into the car. She began to cry. The man told her to stop sobbing. Shut up, or I'll give you what I gave the Black Dahlia, and sliced lightly across Isabel's knuckles. Foster jumped from the moving car. She described her assailant as 27 years of age, dressed in workman's clothing and wearing, quote, a ridiculous stocking cap, end quote. This perpetrator was never caught. Phyllis Jean Sear, 20, West Side photographer's model and waitress, was stopped by the Long Beach police on a traffic violation, volunteers that she's surprised that the police have not questioned Lee about the short girl's murder. Lee and Beth used to run around a lot together, she said. Phyllis Sear described Lee as a black marketeer who deals in nylon stockings. And Lee worked the Hollywood scene in the Gower Gulch, Columbia Square area. Sear said that she and Elizabeth Short posed nude for a photographer named Price. Sear said that Price tried to molest both of them. She also said she'd not seen Elizabeth Short in almost a year. On February 6th, Corporal Joseph Dumas, 29, told Army authorities in New Jersey that he killed Elizabeth Short, then mutilated her body. 
Dumas said he stabbed her in the back and about her mouth, and then he sliced her in half with a meat cleaver. Then he washed the body free of blood and dumped it in a vacant Los Angeles lot. There are many discrepancies in his story. Earlier, he admitted having a date with Miss Short in San Francisco on January 9th or 10th. Dumas can't explain how he got to Los Angeles, then back to his base in New Jersey. He can't explain how Elizabeth Short got to San Francisco or how they returned to Los Angeles or where he mutilated her. He claims he went into a blackout while on a date with her in San Francisco five or six days before her body was found in Los Angeles. Several soldiers report Dumas was at the Army post when the murder took place on the 14th. Volunteers will continue to present themselves in the coming years. Because the Black Dolly is such a powerful moniker that exudes a noir sense of mystery and drama, there are many more volunteers in this case than in, say, the George Bauerdorf murder or the Aura uh, Murray slaying. One has to wonder how much of a social impact if we were just talking about the murder of Elizabeth Short without the moniker, because so much of the power of the Black Dahlia is that mysterious quality to the name. There's a, a strong tendency to dismiss the volunteers as fruitcakes and nutcases, and of course uh, the police are frustrated by how their time is being wasted. But not all volunteers are equal, and the sheer number of these illustrates the deep emotional impact that the gruesome murder has had on the Los Angeles public. Of these volunteers, the attention hounds, the braggarts, the confessors and hoaxers, the Dumas false confession gets the big headline back in the day. But I would give more attention and credence to the witness testimony of Phyllis Jean Sear. Her claim to have known Elizabeth Short is cemented by her naming of Price. George Price's name is found in the Black Dahlia Purse date book. Price picked up Lynn Martin on the boulevard and photographed her. The second time Lynn Martin went to Price's apartment, he took nude photos of her. George Price is an alias, his real name, Clarence Kinney. Hairdresser Alex Constance knew Price and told police that Beth sometimes posed nude for a Hollywood photographer. When police raid the house of George Price, they find nude photos of Lynn Martin and no photos of Elizabeth Short. Well, that's not surprising. If I was George Price, I would have burned any and all photographs and negatives of Elizabeth Short on January 16th. The story of how the press handles Corporal Dumas's uh, confession is a bigger story for this podcast than the false confession itself. The headlines of the confession begin on January 6th, and then he is fully dismissed by the 12th. The front page headline in the Herald Express on February 8th Corporal Dumas is the Black Dahlia Killer. Quite a headline. From that first line, Army Corporal Joseph Dumas, 29, is definitely the murderer of the Black Dahlia. The Los Angeles Times coverage is a bit quieter. 
Fort Dix officer, positive soldier killed short girl. Interestingly, this is the first Black Dahlia article to appear on page one in the LA Times. All the earlier stories and future stories are on page two. In the paper, it says Captain William Florence, head of the New Jersey Criminal Investigation Division, said yesterday in a formal statement that he is definitely convinced that Corporal Joseph Dumas, military policeman and combat veteran, is the murderer of Elizabeth Short. Dumas admitted under questioning by Army investigators that he believed he committed the crime and he knows the manner in which the Black Dahlia's body was mutilated, but refused to give details. As discussed, Dumas says he blacked out in San Francisco, and he only recovers consciousness days later at Penn Station in New York with an unexplained blood-stained pocket. Dumas has no recollection of being in Los Angeles. It's not possible that he could have mailed the belongings of Elizabeth Short from a downtown Los Angeles post box. Dumas is definitely not the Black Dahlia Avenger. There is an interesting possibility that the loud nature of the Herald Express headline is a lure in the manner of an angler's artificial fly to catch the killer, as proposed by Steve Hodell. As there have been uh, a hope, perhaps, that the Dumas claim could loosen the Black Dahlia Avenger's lips because someone else is getting the credit for his work. And this would also explain the surprising appearance of the only Black Dahlia story on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. The theory makes sense, however, since loud headlines are common for the evening paper, it is a speculation that's difficult to prove. I mentioned that there are three locations for activity for the killer the Norton Avenue body dump site, the drop site for the shoes and purse on South Crenshaw, and the mailing of the envelope downtown. Including the mailbox downtown as a third location invites the idea that the adventure would live perhaps midtown and then work downtown. Police in today's world have so many more investigative tools and theories as to criminal behavior than were available to the police in 1947. Of course, DNA and computers, uh, profiling, we live in a world where cameras and cell phones are everywhere. So as an audience in 2020, today's books, podcasts, movies, and television offerings feature serial killers. It's an unknown turn in 1947. The American fascination with the methods, the modus operandi, and motivations of violent killers and how they're caught is 20% of our television entertainment. Scripts and television shows are often going to start with a disposable victim in order to introduce the dangerous cat and mouse game of criminal versus law enforcement. There is a significant impact of the Black Dahlia headlines in the American press as the series of body dumps that happened after January 15, 1947. Jeannie French, Evelyn Winters, Dorothy Montgomery, Laura Trellstad, and Rosanda Mondragon. 
All of these crimes get introduced in the headlines as another Dahlia killing and bring the idea of serial killings as the front page news of these series of murders in this film noir time period creates almost a Black Dahlia scale. How similar is this murder? How similar is that body dump to that of Elizabeth Short? Because the more things that it has in common, the more connections you can make, therefore the more headlines and the more newspapers get sold. Returning uh, to the theme of modern media, serial criminals as villains play a significant role in our movies because they represent the most disturbing threat to society. And scripts for TV shows like Mindhunter or Bosch use visuals to drive home the nuances of the investigation. And very commonly, there'll be a map that is used to illustrate the crime patterns spatly. As serial killers will have a buffer zone that separates home from crime, so research shows that comfort zones will be different not just based on the criminal, but also based on the crime. A rapist might have a two-mile radius from his anchor point. A serial killer, it might be a 10-mile radius. In Los Angeles crime history, a very clear example of this would be the Hillside Strangler case. As the murder torture site was at the home base, and that location basically is a donut hole on a map at the center of the dump sites. Eight of the 10 Hillside Strangler dump sites were within 4.5 miles of Bruno's house and upholstery business on East Colorado and Glendale. I might add that there are similar hunting patterns for sharks, bats, and bees. A hunting ground is separate from the nest. Serial predators have a tendency to have one comfort zone for hunting and then another comfort zone for disposal. So now that the purse and shoes have been dropped in the trash at a restaurant on Crenshaw, we have two locations for disposal, and that changes our comfort zone circle. The Black Dahlia Avenger expected the body to be found. I doubt that he expected the shoes and purse to be found, but that does not substantially change our model because the killer needs to feel safe in both places. If we draw a circle around Norton Avenue to have a sense of the comfort zone as of January 15th, that circle must now be adjusted to include the intersection of West Adams and Crenshaw. And in doing so, it lessens the singularity of the Norton Avenue location. So the Limert Park neighborhood has to share the circle of our profiling model with Hancock Park and Larchmont and West Adams and Jefferson Park as the geographic profile area moves north and slightly east, closer to Hollywood and closer to downtown Los Angeles. That area then sort of encompasses a zone that would be east of Fairfax, west of USC, north of Vernon and south of Melrose. Admittedly, this is speculation, but it's interesting as speculation. For example, if we're going to define the dump zone within a certain area, as we have described, well, that lessens the likelihood of a suspect like George Hodel, who lives a full 25 minutes away from Norton and Coliseum. Hodel's home in the Los Feliz area on Franklin Avenue, he's adjacent to Griffith Park. 
Imagine he could have dumped the body of the victim at the base of the Hollywood sign that's just 2.7 miles from his home. Imagine the headline press a severed body at the Hollywood sign would achieve. This reminds me that the Norton Avenue location as a dump site may or may not have meaning for the killer as a location, but that meaning is not clear to us. One more thing. During a week of slow news, Aggie Underwood wrote an article that resonates with modern media because it's an enticing invitation to speculate and to create false connections. On January 23, 1947, Aggie shines a flashlight on the failure of the Los Angeles police to find the murderer of Elizabeth Short. The headline in the Express reads, Werewolves leave trail of women murders in LA. Aggie writes, so far, all clues have failed. The latest murder mystery, which has provoked the greatest mobilization of crime detection experts in the city's history, is the latest in a long series. Finding her dismembered body was preceded by other gruesome discoveries of women victims slain for lust, for revenge, for reasons unknown. The article in the Herald Express has photographs of Elizabeth Short, Georgette Bauerdorf, Ora Murray, and Gertrude Landon. These unsolved murders of lone women have little in common with Elizabeth Short. The more one investigates, the more obvious that becomes. I'm going to focus on the murder of 20-year-old Georgette Bauerdorf, who was raped and strangled in her West Hollywood apartment early morning, October 12, 1944. A neighbor had heard her scream, Stop, stop, you're killing me, at 2.30 a.m. A bandage-type cotton roll is shoved down her throat, gagging her. She chokes to death. The killer apparently unscrewed a light bulb in the foyer at the front of her apartment door, and no one sees the killer enter or exit. The killer makes a very half-hearted attempt to clean up the blood. Then he sits in a chair and smokes cigarettes instead of escaping. When he leaves, he takes some of the cash in a purse, leaves the front door open, and steals Miss Bauerdorf's 1936 blue Oldsmobile coupe from the garage. That car is found abandoned out of gas on an East 25th Street residential neighborhood that is a substantial distance south from the Hollywood apartment. Georgette is a young woman who works at the Los Angeles Times and who volunteers as a hostess at the Hollywood Canteen once a week on Wednesday night. She dances with servicemen. No officers are allowed in the canteen, just servicemen. The soldiers and sailors she danced with were initially suspects. From the newspaper, 1944, Saturday, October 14th, quote, Miss Bauerdorf's duplex apartment was a, quote, little overnight hospitality center, end quote, for servicemen who, in town, on leave, had no other place to sleep. Of this, sheriff's investigators were convinced after piercing together the stories of a, a score of persons who knew her habits and after leafing through the large bundles of thank you letters from soldiers, sailors, marine, and coast guardsmen, 
most of whom are now in various combat zones, had all slept in the downstairs living room of the suite. So these soldiers are quickly eliminated as suspects. Georgette was schooled in a New York convent and graduated from the Los Angeles West Side School for Girls. She was not promiscuous. But it would have seemed so to a local peeping Tom. A local would have thought about the light and have been worried that he would be recognized as someone from the neighborhood. Police questioned Ernest Tate, 30-year-old Negro janitor, an ex-prize fighter from Indianapolis and Cincinnati. He told sheriff's investigators today that he had a pass key to the swank apartment of Georgette Bauerdorf. Tate said he worked in the apartment house until midnight that Wednesday, but knew nothing of her death. I worked there that night till midnight, then boarded a streetcar from my home. Deputies questioned him on the theory that the brunette girl's assailant was a man acquainted with her habits. Tate said, I had a passkey to her apartment door, but it also had an inside lock which barred passage to the door unless unfastened. Police revealed the killer had sprinkled his fingerprints liberally about the apartment. Fingerprints are found on the door of Miss Bauerdorf's flashy convertible, which was recovered the following day in the Negro section of Los Angeles. A clear set of fingerprints was found on the bulb of the nightlight over the outer entrance of the building. Apparently the killer knew Miss Bauerdorf was living alone and had unscrewed the light bulb to darken the hallway leading to the apartment. The door locking from the inside is important, given that there's no evidence of a break-in Georgette knew her killer, as the calling out of the word stop, stop, you're killing me would suggest as well. The absence of a fingerprint match is of significance because it excludes the soldiers and the people who worked for any defense factory. And so police theorized a man with a strong arm and a weak mind committed the crime. Sheriff's Deputy Penpraise said that the fingerprints found in the victim's car in her apartment and on the light globe above the outside door did not check with each other. Wow. I only find that in one newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner. The light bulb fingerprint does not match the prints left in the stolen car or the prints in the apartment. All of the prints have been checked against the military and state records and the FBI. Hence, the subheadline in the 1944 San Francisco Examiner reads, Fingerprints Useless in Murder of Hollywood Canteen Girl. So we know in 2020, the Bauerdorf case, fingerprints don't match the Black Dahlia fingerprints. Tate, although he is eliminated as a suspect, never goes back to that job not wishing to be shoehorned by the police into the role of suspect because the car was left in a Negro neighborhood. The focus shifts on the following day. Georgette Bauerdorf, oil heiress and Hollywood canteen hostess, may have induced death by disrobing before an unshaded bedroom window. Lieutenant Garner Brown reported he was investigating information that the brunette, Miss Bauerdorf, had at times failed to draw the curtains. 
He said her slayer may have watched her preparations to retire before gaining entrance to the Hollywood apartment where she was raped and strangled. Evidence shows that the murder is unplanned. The killer is disorganized and confused by his options after he has silenced Georgette. Why would he lift her up and place her in the tub and fill it with hot water? Why wipe up some of the blood then suddenly tire of the task? The ashtrays are filled with cigarette butts without lipstick. Did the killer sit and smoke trying to think about what to do? Shouldn't the killer be worried that someone heard Georgette scream, Stop, you're killing me? The killer has to think the police are coming and be wondering, Do I plead guilty? Do I drive to Mexico? He takes some cash but leaves jewelry and a wad of $2 bills. The killer seems totally unconcerned about fingerprints, leaves the door to the apartment open when he exits. Of the lone women murders, only Georgette is killed at home. Indeed, there are many only Georgette aspects to this case, beginning with the fact that her family is rich and that there are plentiful opportunities for the rapist killer to be caught. Stealing a car was particularly foolish. Georgette is killed because she's a witness to a crime in a way, because this did not start as a murder, but as a rape. The killer then has no plan to dispose of or hide the dead body. In contrast to the Black Dahlia killer, who selects his victim, lightly a pickup, he takes her to a room whose design is for the purpose of torture before death, and the killer has plans for a public display of the body after the death. That's an organized killing with a focus on attention in the media. The killer of Georgette is not organized, not smart, and shows no concern about the media. So the crime is a very un-Black Dahlia crime. There are many significant differences in motive and evidence. So today, when media authors abbreviate the details of the case, they do so in a way so that there are parallels and intersections. These true crime creators of blogs and videos and podcasts who engage in this clickbait media formula are modern volunteers in the Black Dahlia mystery. Let's return once again to the first examiner headline, Tortured, Killed, Hacked, Found Nude in Lot. Elizabeth Short suffered torture, not Bauerdorf, not Murray, not Landon. Nor were they severed, nor were they drained of blood or dumped in a suburb where children ride bicycles. There's no logical direct connection that can be made to any of the lone women murders to the torture and death of the Black Dahlia. So this concept of a werewolf is a titillating waste of time. It's nothing more than a speculative headline on a slow news day. Until next time, when a woman's bludgeoned body is found in a vacant lot.